The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Once more, we're looking at the Ten Commandments, this time the last of them, number 10. I'll read for you from Exodus 20, the commandment itself in verse 17. I'll read the subsequent follow-up, although I'm really planning that next Sunday I will conclude this series by dealing with verses 18 to 21, but I'll read those verses now, and then I'll add a passage from Matthew chapter 6. Listen to God's word. The Lord speaking to Moses. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood afar off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, and that you may not sin. And the people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. I'd like to read this word also of Jesus, and what he's really doing is interpreting and applying the Ten Commandments in much of the material in the Sermon on the Mount. It's amazing the parallels that can be drawn between the Sermon on the Mount and the Ten Commandments, and Jesus is really speaking to that that last commandment as we find his words here in Matthew 6.25. Therefore, I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. 
For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's Word. I remember at the turning of the 21st century, 13 years ago now, reading a very interesting article in which a sociologist made a comparison between the state of life in 1999 as the century turned over and what things were like a century before when 1899 became 1900. He did a fairly detailed study of what the average American's life was like in terms of physical circumstances and the things, the possessions that people basically needed and sought after in their lives. And, uh, you know, you could debate these figures, I suppose, but the sociologist came up with roughly 100 different items that he said the person in 1899, this is an average blue-collar farmer type of person in America, would have felt was essential to his life, and if he really had to be pushed, that maybe 30 or 40 of them were absolutely essential. Things, things like a horse and a carriage, you know, a wood stove to cook on, tools to apply his trade, uh, a small house uh, in which, by the way, the bathroom was probably a shed in the, in the backyard, and a Sunday suit to wear, a few chickens, and so on. And that was life in 1899. And then he compared that life with people in America, again, just the average working-class person in 1999. And he said there you would be able to identify maybe as many as eight or 900 times the number of articles that people would think they would want, and probably about 300 of them that they would say, well, these are needs just think how our lives have changed. You know, instead of a, a, a little house with a, a few rooms that maybe sixteen or 1,700 square feet in which a, a family raised four children with no bathroom in the house, and now today we'd say, oh, my goodness, we couldn't possibly do with less than 3,000 square feet and two or three bathrooms all in the house, please. And we couldn't do without two cars for sure and multiple cell phones, and a retirement account, and multiple walk-in closets, and vacations that flew us to nice places outside of the United States, and a job that brings good pay and, and also brings us a high degree of personal satisfaction. Our requirements are a lot higher, aren't they? Because of technology, because of affluence, we think so much more is necessary and needed. Well, as the Lord God concluded his Ten Commandments through Moses, given to the society of people, not just of Israel in that day, but to us today, number ten of those commandments is stated uniquely and in a way that it pierces into the people that we are and what we think we need in our lives and what we yearn for and believe we must have. If I could restate it, because most of you aren't coveting, I don't think, oxes or donkeys, the commandment goes this way. You shall not covet, not your neighbor's wife, nor his Mercedes, nor his 72-inch wide flat screen TV, nor his promotion recently to be vice president of the company. You shall not turn your eyes to 
your neighbor's situation and say, oh, that that could be mine. Now, at the root of this commandment, I would say to you, there's a four-letter word. It's an ugly word. It can be an ugly word, at least. In fact, it can be one of the most profane words in our language, though you would not think of it that way most of the time. The word is spelled M-O-R-E. Lord, I just need more. When I'm 21 and starting into my first job and not able to afford a house yet, I need more. When I'm 39 and owning my second or third house and looking for a better one, I need more. When I've climbed the corporate ladder a certain way, I've had some success behind me, but I expect more. And here we are, longing for possessions, success, status, cash, health, comfort, luxuries, recreations, always dissatisfied with the place where we basically are right now. And that dissatisfaction tends to have a spiritually corrosive effect upon us. It pushes us away from a settled peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word uh, in, in Greek in the New Testament for covetousness is a word that means crooked love. It means loving something that will not and cannot love you back, but will simply draw more and more of your love and your obsession. Well, covetousness may be listed last among the Ten Commandments, and yet it's so tied to the others that some would say this is almost the master sin. It seems to some like it's a very minor sin. Why? You say comparing it to murder or adultery or stealing or idol worship, those are big things. This isn't so bad. This, in fact, this is unique because it's something that just goes on inside your head. You could be coveting up a storm, and the person who knows you best wouldn't know it necessarily until it begins to issue in some kind of action. Whereas if you, go, if you tell a blatant lie or you go steal something or commit adultery, why, that's an action that can be identified right away. So you say, well, this is just something that's all in my head. But the problem is, while it begins in your head, it works through the whole of your being and eventually is going to affect your behavior. As you identify something that you think, well, I'm short of this, I need more of it, or I don't have it at all, I need it. And let me tell you, we've got a a whole advertising industry in this country that is more than willing to come alongside you and say, yes, you really do need it, and you need it now. And I'll give you credit to buy it. Whether you're credit worthy or not, you know, boy, we've got all kinds of things that get people in trouble with covetousness today in the, in the advertising media. And as you might congratulate yourself, you might look at the Ten Commandments and go down the list and say, well, let me see how I'm doing here. Uh, check it off. Didn't worship idols. Uh, check it off. No committing adultery. Check. No murders yet. Check. No bank robbed. But... Don't tell me that you can check off number 10 and dismiss it. Because I would challenge whether there's any person here today that can say in the last week, I haven't coveted something. I haven't fixed my wants and my desires upon something that I don't have now that I really think I need. This is something that affects the have-not people as well as the haves. 
Because even if you're in the haves, if you're in the top strata, you know, you're worth a million or two or four or five million dollars. You've just adjusted your wants several steps higher than the rest of us. And you're still desiring and still coveting something that you don't have. As one man said, the grass always looks greener the next pasture over. And that's not just true for farmers. Commandment number 10 destroys that naive idea that I can keep God's law. You cannot keep this commandment in your own power. It simply teaches you what a great Savior you need to forgive you for something that's plaguing your mind all the time as you're pursuing every kind of thing you don't have. You see, what you're really doing is tantamount to worshiping those things. You're crowning those things and saying, you're my God. If I just had you, I'd be satisfied. Whatever it is, a new car, better income, more recognition from people at work. I worship that. I I would desire to have that. And that's why Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, covetousness is idolatry. It's false worship. Now, I'm going to deal with this commandment in just two main points today. I'll tell you what those are. First, I'm going to sketch the breadth of the problem by speaking about what I'll call an all-consuming quest for more. And secondly, we'll look at a biblical solution to the problem under the title, The All-Sustaining Calm of Enough, in quotes. First, the entire Bible offers examples of what I call our all-consuming quest for more. You can find it every place. Start with the most fundamental beginning, Adam and Eve in the garden. You would say, well, their sin was disobedience. Yes, but how did it start? They disobeyed the Lord as they admired something they'd been told that they would not and should not possess. And the idea came into the woman's head, why should I not have that? I don't think it's reasonable that that fruit has been banned from me. What's stopping me? I can have it now, and I will. And that enticing coveting of something forbidden was a spark that ignited a forest fire of sin, says the Old Testament. Or take King David. Here's a man of faith in God, a man praised, the man after God's own heart he's called, king over a realm, successful, talented, probably handsome. We don't have any pictures of David to know, but he was certainly admired. You wouldn't think he was an ugly man. Courageous, wise, a a bold warrior. What could this man possibly lack as he brought the kingdom of Israel into power and and spreading authority. He already had several wives, which were more than he should have had. But one day, as he was gazing at another man's wife, what happened to David? He coveted that woman and said, there's a beautiful woman, and I don't have her, and I'm the king. Why don't I have her? And you know the story. How he worked a plot that brought murder to her husband. Not literal stabbing the man in the heart, but designing so that he would be killed in battle. And then committed adultery and took that woman to his wife. It all began with covetousness. And it affected the whole kingdom of Israel. A key text might be Luke chapter 12, where Jesus was asked there in the middle of that chapter, verses 14 and 15, a man came, he said, well, here's a respected rabbi in the community. I've got a problem. I need a mediator. I need, I need an arbitrator. 
And so this man came and said, Rabbi, I want you to be the judge with me and my brother. We're trying to divide my father's estate. There's a big contest here. Uh, Please bring us your wisdom. What he was really saying is, please make sure I get the most of the money from the estate. And Jesus said, who made me a judge between you? Jesus was pretty clearly focused in his mission, and he wasn't going to be distracted to do jobs that God had not called him to do. And, but he took enough time to point out to that man what was going on in his life. He said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You don't have a proper definition of life. You think if you just get the bigger part of this estate of your father's, all will be well. And implied in all that was the fact that these two brothers were so intent upon shekels from the father's bank vault that they didn't really care if they lost their brother in the gaining of the shekels. And their personal relationship had become such that that people... Men who were brothers were mere pawns to one another to be manipulated, just as you might work at a company, and and instead of your co-workers being really trusted friends, they're more like your competitors, because you know that maybe out of four of you, one is going to be chosen to be the next manager, and so you're working one-upmanship all the time with those other people, and, and they're either obstacles in your path or assets to be exploited in the advancement of your own career as you covet that higher position. Covetousness can even take very legitimate things. You know, it doesn't have to begin as a great sinful thing. Here's an example where people in my age bracket might be thinking that, well, someday I'm going to retire and I'm going to need to be able to live when I retire. And so How am I doing in investments and savings and so on? How's my 401k fund? You know, the stock market's not being kind to it. Am I going to be able to retire? Now, if you started out in your 20s doing what they tell you to do, and I would advise you in your 20s who are able to do that, to please start out in your 20s saving for retirement. I didn't, and I'm sorry I didn't. Because you get to a point in your life where you can't make up for what you didn't do when you were younger. And so now you're looking, as I might be doing, and saying, hmm, let me see here. certain number of years down the road, uh, this lump of money is going to have to kick off enough interest to help me live. Is there enough? And you start saying, oh, my goodness. Why? It doesn't look like enough. It doesn't look like what the experts say I need to have. So here's a perfectly legitimate concern, saving money. That's a good thing. Investing, good thing. But it turns into an obsessive worry if you're sitting around saying, oh, if only it could be this much more. And that's weighing on you all the time. You see how covetousness can even get into our legitimate pursuits and really take us into a sinful state of anxiety. Matthew 6 speaks to this as Jesus addresses the idea of this anxious care. Really, the anxiety that he was addressing in Matthew 6 is covetousness. It's saying, I don't have enough, or I don't think I'll have tomorrow what I need to have. And Jesus says, look, don't get obsessed with that. Isn't life more than food and clothing? 
And by the way, it's futile because you can't give yourself necessarily more tomorrow by sitting here today fretting about it. You can't add an hour to the span of your life. And have you forgotten that your heavenly Father is already concerned about this and is already planning and already wants your you know, your best result, and he's working on that behalf. The providential, loving, merciful God cares about your future. And so Jesus says, seek him, and all the rest will fall into line. Instead of coveting and worrying and fretting over that that you can't affect anyway. A great verse out of 1 Peter 5, 7, many know the verse there that says, cast all your cares on him who cares for you. You're not in the caring and planning business alone. God's care and concern far outstrips your own planning, your own doing to try to provide for yourself. Believe that he is working for your best. And as you're caught in this inevitable way of thinking, this all-consuming quest, how do I get more? How do I get more? How do I get more? You can become kind of like that hamster. If you've ever had a hamster in your house, you've probably had the exercise wheel, right? I always used to feel like the exercise wheel in the hamster cage was a form of torture. The poor thing gets on that wheel. I suppose it gets a good workout, but, you know, it runs and runs and runs and runs and runs until it must feel it never goes anywhere. It never gains anything from the running. Jesus said, don't be the covetous hamster on the wheel of life who's running and running and running in your anxiety for more. You're wearing yourself out to no result at all. Well, then I do believe in the second place that commandment number 10 does have an antidote, does have a recommended solution by the Scripture. Now, I want to point out here, as I speak to you secondly, about the all-sustaining calm of having enough, that there's an important difference between Christianity and Buddhism. Some of you are Buddhists and you don't even know it, because you share in a central tenet of the teaching of Buddhism, which has to do with the fact that, that Buddhism would say that The biggest thing wrong with most human lives is that people want things they can't get and they have this wanting and striving, exactly what we're talking about. And the Buddhist says, well, there's an easy answer. Just push all that stuff out of your life. Train yourself to enter a a neutral state where you don't want things anymore. And you'll eventually come to the goal of nirvana where you have no wants at all. Noble teaching. I'd like to see somebody who's ever done it. I'm not aware that Buddhism really offers you a very clear, other than meditation and things that are supposed to clear your mind, you know, you really don't have a way to cancel or evacuate those material strivings and desires. The Bible doesn't say just sit down and meditate and get rid of your desires. That's not our teaching. In fact, the antidote to anxiety is, according to the Scripture, is not to say stop wanting things, because the Bible's realistic and knows you can't stop easily. The alternative is this. Begin wanting the one great thing 
that is worthy of all your passion and all your striving and all your desire. And as you begin to taste that and come into the possession of that, which is the knowledge of the true God by trusting Christ as your Lord, all the other things, you see, fall into their subordinate positions. They don't go away. But they are seen, many of them, as being so trivial, so small, alongside the towering objective of knowing God through Jesus Christ. The possession of Christ tends to subdue every lesser desire before it, as you see him first and foremost. There's an old gospel chorus. You may think it's simplistic, but I think it's, it speaks of this. I remember singing this in my Sunday school days way back as a child. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have him than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Now, I've had more than one occasion in my life to think that's awfully idealistic. Why, here's Jesus, somebody we can't even see with our eyes as opposed to cash that we can count or cars that we can park in the driveway and and drive around and, and feel powerful. I'd rather have that which is unseen and insubstantial, this song is saying. No. I'd rather have him who is the presence of God, the fullness of God in a human body, the one in whom all things in the universe hold together, having him, knowing him, all that other stuff is going to fall way, way down in the list of my desires. And the question is whether we can really sing a song like that with any sincerity. I'd rather have Jesus because having him, I actually have everything. You see, the opposite of covetousness is contentment that is based not in things, not in circumstances, not in health, but is based rather in the hold that you have upon the Son of God as your Savior and your Lord. Have you tasted of Him, trusted in Him, this profound knowledge of being secure of your eternal destination? of the forgiveness of sins, of the open door of heaven, that Christ is your possession. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all the others are added, the Scripture says. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, you get to be a millionaire too. Not necessarily. It means all the other things are in their proper place. There's a Puritan writer named Jeremiah Burroughs who wrote several hundred years ago, a little book that's still in print. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I love his title because the title tells you exactly what the book's about. It's about this rare thing of being contented in Christ, of seeking satisfaction in Christ. Here's what Burroughs said in one theme paragraph, I think. He wrote, I, I only find a sufficiency of satisfaction in my own heart through the grace that Christ is constantly working out in me. Though I may not have outward comforts and conveniences that others strive for, yet, he said, I have a sufficient portion of Christ in my soul to satisfy me in every condition. There's a man for whom a greater goal has come to replace all those lesser strivings. 
I've spoken many times before of how much I love the 73rd Psalm. It's one of the great psalms. If it, if it doesn't ring in your mind with familiarity like the 23rd and others do, your homework assignment is go read the, tw- the 73rd Psalm. It's not written by David. It's written by a man named Asaph. We know very little about Asaph, but we know he was just like us. And Psalm 73 starts out with Asaph undergoing what I call a pity party. He was looking around, seeing people richer than himself. In the King James language of 73, he spoke of of wealthy people who, he said, their eyes bulged out with fatness. Wow. And people who had no troubles, no qualms, they never seemed to get sick. And they laughed at God, and they said, oh, does God exist, those poor believers who run around to church all the time? What idiots they are, wasting their time. And Asaph said, these people just seem to have everything, and everything goes their way. And here I am, the poor believer, working away, and nothing is going my way. But then the man wakes up in the middle of the psalm. And he woke up because he was in worship. And he said, I went into the house of the Lord, and it was like a mist disappeared, like the morning fog burned away, and I saw those people as they really were. Nothing substantial belonged to them whatsoever. They're on a slippery slope, and they were going fast down. And here I am with a great relationship with the true and living and eternal God. And he spoke those words in Psalm 73, 25, that's strengthened my heart every time I think of them. He said to God, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing on it that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart will fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's a man, you see, who found a God-based contentment. He desired and sought after and, yes, even coveted the greatest thing that a person can seek. And because he possessed it, he said, all the rest looks like nothing to me. You know, there's a practical discipline attached to this. If you ask me, well, how do I go about pulling my desires in that direction and away from all the the things I want and, and I obsess over? Well, there's really a pretty simple exercise, and it's the simple exercise of continually, regularly giving thanks. Thanksgiving is not a date in November on the calendar to be thought about once a year. Thanksgiving is a daily requirement of the Christian life. The Bible is constantly urging us, give thanks to the Lord, not only because he deserves it, that's the first reason, but the secondary reason is because it's so good for us to do that. It's like therapy for us, therapy that reminds us because it speaks the truth to us. You see, we're going along like Asaph saying, nothing's going my way, Everything's, everybody's got more than I have, this isn't very good, I sure wish I could have more of this and more of that. Stop. You need to give thanks. What has God done in your life last week, yesterday, 10 days ago? You're not recollecting that. You have short-term memory where the work of God in your life is concerned. You need to tell your own forgetful soul what God has been doing. And as you give thanks, you see things come into perspective. 
Paul talked about it in Philippians 4 when he said he had learned in whatever state he was in, therein to be content. I'm so glad Paul didn't say, he didn't just say, whatever state I'm in, I'm content there. No, he said, I had to learn that. That implies a process of educating his soul. He had to understand that when he was thrown in prison or when he was chased from town to town or shipwrecked or something else terrible was going on, he wasn't content just because he was a happy-go-lucky person who, who never got upset about anything, but deliberately, through thanksgiving, through praising God, he had trained himself to know what contentment in God was. And so there he was in the Philippian jail in the middle of the night singing choruses of praise to God. That was part of his training. And Paul's sitting there thinking, well, I could sit here and grind my teeth and grump away at why they threw me. They shouldn't have thrown me in this prison. I'm a Roman citizen. I should be hollering for justice. No, I'll sing praise to God. I'll thank God. I'll turn my passion and my concern on the greatest object it could be turned upon. And a jail will fade out of significance, at least to a large extent. You see what I'm saying? There's one area in which wanting more of something is not sinful. You cannot break the Tenth Commandment in this one area. And that is in seeking to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior more and more and more. Trusting Him more, following Him more, serving Him more, coming before Him more in prayer, delving more into His Word. You cannot violate the Tenth Commandment in seeking M-O-R-E of Christ. And if you're a person who's unsatisfied with your current spiritual growth, as I would suspect many are, I say good. Let that dissatisfaction drive you to know him more, to pray more, to read this book more, to meditate more on his goodness. It is not a sin to desire him who is more than you can ask or think, more and more. A couple weeks ago, we had a funeral here for one of our charter members, and the family asked me to speak at the funeral, and I did, from 1 Timothy 6.6, the phrase that speaks about godliness with contentment being a great gain. I thought, what a good epitaph that was for this lady who did indeed embody that. Great contentment and quietness in her life. But it wasn't a contentment based on being wealthy beyond great uh, standards of this world. If she had a sufficiency, if she had enough in her life, it was Christ's sufficiency. It was enough that she, like Asaph, was trusting in her God, whom Second Peter 1.3 says, when it speaks of Christ, that in Christ we have all we need, everything we need, for life and godliness. One day, the believer is told we are going to see our Savior face to face. And I can tell you, you won't be standing there in that moment thinking, oh, what a great Savior. Look at the glory of Christ. But only if I only had more in my retirement account. <laughs> I'm sorry, you won't be thinking that. You'll be saying, look, the one who's the desire of nations, 
Look at the one in whom the loveliness of God and the grandeur of his character is displayed in this Savior of mine. I'll never today in this life have that sight. I won't achieve the excellence of that in this life, but I know it's coming. And I know that when I do see him, I'll certainly say, with many exclamation points after it, it is enough. It is enough. Let's pray together. Father, teach us to want the right things. Teach us to seek the one great thing that excels above all others. Subdue our sinful wants. We're all guilty of this. Help us to see what we're doing as we're literally not trusting you with our anxiety and our covetousness. Thank you for a Savior whom we can pursue and desire and run after who always will be more grand, more complete, more compelling, more fulfilling than our best thought about him can possibly attain. Thank you for Jesus. Amen.